sit on the front row, you get to ask. Elder Preby, I have a question regarding uh, your statement saying that God does not uh, give us his robe of righteousness to cover our sins. Yes. Uh, what are your views um, on the book, His Robe or Mine, and how it relates to justification and sanctification? All right. Have you heard of that book, His Robe or Mine? It is a very popular book in the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now. It is being handed out free to anyone who wants it at the major GYC meetings that have been held around the United States. It is always there. It is handed out regularly. And it is, I've talked to many people who have been blessed by it. People get whole boxes of books to hand out to their churches. This is an Adventist author. He has died. Uh, he wrote the book His Robe or Mine before he died. And it has now been printed and is being circulated widely. As in all books of this kind, there is much good. As I went through the book carefully, I went from the middle chapters, about chapter 3 and 4, right on through probably chapter 17 or 18. I forget how many chapters in the book. But as I read through the middle chapters, it talked about how we can have a relationship with Christ, how we, how we can have a prayer experience, how we can do all the things which are very important and necessary, all very good stuff. But you know how it started out? The book started out by saying that we are born in the state of sin. Remember that big capital letter, sin? That we are born in a state of sin, and therefore every act of our lives is a sin act. And therefore the only thing that can actually be done is to forgive us of that sin, and the only way we will stop sinning is if this nature is ripped out of us somehow. And it says that Jesus Christ did not have our nature, therefore he could not be tempted as we are tempted on the same levels, and therefore he was not an example to us, he was a substitute for us. So unfortunately what this book is doing is taking parts, as, and I'm going back now to our first meeting four years ago, taking parts of the Adventist authentic gospel and combining it with parts of the evangelical gospel, born in sin, Jesus wasn't tempted like we are, justification more important than sanctification, and putting them together in a very attractive way. And so I'm going to suggest to you that this is one of the many, many books that combines truth with error. And if you can discern the truth from the error in the book, you can read it profitably. If you are not able to discern the truth from the error, you will buy the error along with the truth. And you will find it very hard to find the real gospel experience. So I would say that this is one of many books that are doing that. Again, this one coming from a very conservative, Bible-believing, spirit-of-prophecy-believing individual who wants only the best for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he speaks very highly of the 1888 message and the messengers that came. And he wants us to be the fulfillment of that message. All the intentions are good. But, my friends, the evangelical gospel has so swept in, so inundated the thinking of the best of us in the Seventh-day Adventist church that we have unwittingly combined both of them together, not knowing that they are two opposite gospels. That's the problem with his robe or mine. Hi, Elder Preby. Um I'm sorry to get into semantics here, but... Uh, for when you talked about justification, you said that um, it was a condition of salvation, right? And the cause was the, uh, okay. no. the rockets underneath the ship, but the no. condition... Oh, no, sorry. justification is not a condition of salvation. Justification is salvation. A condition of justification is repentance, surrender, obedience as a condition of justification. Justification is the act of God. 
Justification is his applying legally and experientially his power, his grace, Christ's merits to my account. So justification is all his work. The conditions that must be met for justification and the conditions that must be met for sanctification are willingness, obedience, surrender, etc. That's what I was meaning. I see. That makes more sense. Thank you. All right. Thank you for clarifying because that is important to clarify. Over here or there? Um, I'm going to read a short sentence from uh, Willie White. He said, one by one, those who had been among the opposition at Minneapolis had made confession, accepted and rejoiced in the new light and preached it, at least theoretically. Theoretically, yes. And Sister White said, professing, professionally believing. yes. So my question is, forgetting about the people that has the wrong uh, doctrine, mm-hmm. but the people that has the right doctrine, do we live the truth or we profess uh-huh. or yes. just have it theoretically? Your point is very well taken because there were two kinds of responses to the 1888 message. One was genuine, sincere, heartfelt repentance for denying the gospel as preached by that. And Ellen White did point to a number of individuals who did that. And then there were others who saw those repenting ones and they said, well, we better say the same thing, even though down in our hearts we don't like them any better. And uh, we read about continual objections to Jones and not allowing him to speak in certain places, etc., etc. The quibbling in the underground still went on. So yes, some did repent genuinely and some repented with their lips. How does that relate to us? Well, you've answered the question, haven't you? Professedly accepting all of the truths that I have said here and saying, yes, this is right. And yes, we believe in the true, authentic Adventist message. And then not living it on our lives will mean zero, zip and end, nothing. When I go to churches and give this mess, my basic message on righteousness by faith, I tell them at the end of that message, if we have sorted out a doctrine of sin, if we have sorted out a doctrine of the nature of Christ, if we have sorted out a doctrine of perfection, and we aren't doing any better in our lives, and we aren't agonizing for victory over sin, and we aren't going to the Lord in helplessness and surrender, then we've all wasted our time this whole weekend, you and me. Because nothing about settling a doctrine will lead us to an experience of heart surrender unless it is more than lip service. We're very good at lip service and very much behind in heart surrender. And I think that's what you were trying to get at, and you're exactly right. The same thing applies today as it did back then. That if it isn't heart surrender, listen, there are going to be a lot of people and Adventists and and other Christians in heaven who haven't gotten certain teachings right. I'll even go so far as to say the nature of Christ. There will be people in heaven who believe totally wrong on the nature of Christ, but their hearts are so in love with Jesus Christ and they are following him and he is the Lord of their lives and their hearts are sealable by his seal and they will walk into the courts of heaven even if they are dead wrong on how Jesus lived in his life on earth. Now, I will say that gives them a lot of problem that they will get misled if they believe a false doctrine, but the false doctrine is not as serious as a false heart. Um, I'm kind of wondering um, about growing in grace. All right. I really believe in that, that you grow as you learn more and more and the Holy Spirit works with you. You just don't slam, bang, and become. Yeah. 
um, what I noticed with the apostles, you mentioned them, and uh, I don't like them equated with the devil yeah. because it seems like they're growing in That's grace. That's right. They are. Uh, and the but devil are, is beyond compare. He's a But the devil psychotic. is in charge of the way they're doing things at certain times. When Peter denies Christ... That's the devil working in him. Well, what I noticed <laughs> was that they, they go on and on. Yeah. And, and this happened with, uh, like, Peter. Well, then Pentecost comes along. Yes. yes. And so that gives me a little hope That's in my right. daily life. I think the latter rain may help us a little, just like it helped Peter. Uh, if, am I in the wrong okay. vein of thinking? You're right and you're wrong. You have both you have points here that are exactly right, and then there are some things that I would like to suggest. Um, the disciples, they were converted. Didn't they leave their nets, follow Jesus? They left their income. Matthew left the tax collector's lucrative salary to walk after Jesus with no hope of anything at all. That's conversion. And Jesus ordained them, didn't he? And he sent them out and they cast out devils. And after that, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus had to say to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. So you see, the disciples had a conversion experience. But then they kind of did what we all do. They went back into Romans 7 a little bit. And kind of, you know, let the old combine with the new. The old man combine with the new man. And that new life, you know, that's why we say he lost his first love. Well, we kind of let the old creep back in. The old nature, the old feelings, the old emotions creep back in. And it sort of clouds our experience into which we then begin to do what the disciples did. Forget about what Jesus taught and go back into old habits. And Jesus has to say, we've got to be reconverted. Now, so the reality is God gives us much growing time. He does. And if we are cut short at any point in that growing time, if the heart is surrendered, we are safe in his hands. He does give us growing time. But, you see, they couldn't wait until the day of Pentecost. Uh, when did Peter have his real conversion experience? The night he denied Christ, isn't it? Where did he go? He went running out to the very spot in which Jesus had poured out his life on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane and wept in agony for his sin. Wept in agony. And from that moment forward, Peter was a totally different man. And that's why when Jesus had to come to Peter and he told him three times, I'm going to challenge you, are you ready to feed my lambs, not just my sheep, my little ones, my, my, my barely beginning ones? Finally, Peter said, yes, I'm willing. And so I'm going to suggest that the disciples had to have a turnaround heart experience before they ever got to the upper room. They had to have an experience in which the former rain had pervaded their lives in total conversion so that when they got to the upper room and spent only a few days together in that upper room, they spent all that time confessing sins one to another that they had done sometime in the past that had hurt other people so that there would be unity among God's people. A unified spirit, no longer picking flaws in someone else, but totally unified in one purpose and in one goal. And that's when what compares to the latter rain for us could be poured out upon their lives. The former rain had to occur before the upper room experience on the day of Pentecost. And then by a few extra steps, the latter rain could be poured out. How does it work for us? The former rain has to change us completely. It has to dominate our lives. It has to change our thinking and reconvert us, maybe two or three times over. 
And then when God sees that his people are no longer selfish, no longer self-centered, no longer critical, no longer angry, but have the spirit of Jesus Christ, then he can entrust them with latter rain power. And yes, there will be some growing during latter rain. Ellen White calls it the ripening of the harvest. We will do some confessing to one another. We will do some agonizing with the Lord. We will do some praying that we've never prayed before. But our sins will already have been given into the hands of Jesus Christ. And the latter rain will fall only upon those who have abandoned sin as a way of life. So the conversion process has to happen before the latter rain. That will not convert us. That will only ripen us. There's a difference. Ripening will occur after the latter rain. It will occur during the time of the seven trouble, the seven plagues. It will occur during the time of Jacob's trouble. More ripening will take place after the conversion has been fully settled in. So Ellen White says, settled in intellectually and experientially so we cannot be moved. That's former rain. So I'm suggesting that, the, the, that yes, God gives us growing time, but let's not wait until latter rain to grow. <laughs> That's what I'm suggesting. Yes. The, the, uh, the Israelites, when they came, when they were in the wilderness, on a daily basis, they came bringing their sacrifices to the altar, which is a symbol of the cross and of Calvary. And they were legally justified every time they did that. That's right. However, they, those that were not Levites could not daily enter into that priestly relationship of putting on the the priestly robes which are a symbol of Christ's righteousness now post Calvary I think we are able to do that mm. so that that legal standing at Calvary is the cause that goes through the tree of our life that allows us to bear fruit I like that that's good that it, there's a power there that will transform us, and we are all priests now. That's the difference. Thank you. Right. Yes. Um, some, some say that uh, during the time of Jacob's trouble that God will desert us. Aha. And on our own, we're yeah. going to live a righteous life. If that happens, well, that can't be, we're can all you? gone. We're all yeah, gone. Yeah, because the power comes from God. We are told that we will live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. And I've seen some interesting books and titles, Never Without an Intercessor. Yeah, we will be without an intercessor. The Bible says that if we believe in the close of probation. He will cease his intercessory work, which is his work of interceding for our sins and pleading his blood to cover our sins because we have once again maligned the character of God and messed our lives up. That will cease. But one thing can never cease. Here's the way I phrase it sometimes. We have two hands. And God says, I have two gifts for you. I will forgive all your sins if you'll open up your, your hand, your fist, and I will pour in my forgiving grace. Now you have another hand. Will you open it up and let me pour in my overcoming grace? Two gifts of God's grace. Forgiveness, overcoming. And we look at the two and we tend to think sometimes that forgiveness is an easier way than overcoming because overcoming requires some lifestyle changes. But you know what? Of the two gifts, which is the better gift? Forgiveness or overcoming? And I think we all know, don't we? 
You know how much better it is? The time of the end of, of the close of probation, God will take away this beautiful gift of forgiving grace for all eternity. It'll never be seen again. It's gone for the rest of eternity. This was a temporary measure. And for the rest of eternity, there will be no forgiving grace. But what will there be? The reason God takes away forgiving grace is not to make it hard for us to go through, but because, and God always does this, He takes away what is unnecessary. He doesn't take away what is necessary. He takes away what is no longer needed. And when forgiving grace is no longer needed in our lives because we have been so filled with overcoming grace, He will say, there's no point to carry this on anymore. There's no business for me up in heaven. Let's shut the doors and we're on to bigger business. And overcoming grace is going to be poured on in double and triple and quadruple measure. And that's the way we survive the time of Jacob's trouble and the close of probation. And it's the only way we can stand. We'll need more angelic help, more Holy Spirit help, more presence of Christ than we've ever needed in our lives. We just won't need forgiveness. That's what's missing after the close of probation. But we want everything else in full measure. And then we survive even when we're struggling in the middle of some jail cell or some whatever situation it is. And we are, we are despairing. It's not going to work. It's, it's hopeless. But then we say, but Jesus Christ led me up to this point. Here is his grace. I will not let him down now. And that overcoming grace will just overflow in our lives. That's the only way we stand. Okay, on this, um, during the sermon time, you were saying sanctification is the cause of salvation. Yes. Can it be the cause and the fruit of salvation? Cause and, and fruit. All, not all, but and the fruit of salvation. I don't think so. I honestly because don't I'm, think. The reason I'm saying that is just because of Revelation 5:22 and 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit, which is... Uh, foot of sanctification. All right. The terms justification and sanctification do not refer to obedience. They do not refer to fruits of the Spirit. They do not refer to uh, all of these things. They refer to God's ways of saving. They refer to forgiving grace. They refer to overcoming grace. Both gifts of God. One justification is forgiving grace. Sanctification is overcoming grace. It is 100% God's gift. That's why I say that the, the, nothing that God does can be a fruit. He will produce a fruit in me, and there are fruits that he will produce. We can call obedience one of those fruits. Obedience can be both a condition and a fruit. Yes, obedience can be that. Uh, living an upright life can be an obedience and a fruit. It can be a condition and a fruit. The fruits of the Spirit that are described in, in the Bible can be both conditions and fruits. Yes, all of those can be both and. But justification and sanctification are not fruits of anything. Justification and sanctification are two words used to describe one thing, what God does for a helpless sinner. And that's not a fruit of anything. God does something for sinners that is his merit, his business, his power, and nothing that I can contribute makes any difference at all, and nothing will happen, no, nothing is a, is a fruit of that. God's doings are never fruits. That's why I exclude sanctification from fruit, while I will allow obedience to be both a condition and a fruit. Now, does that help or, or confuse you more? Okay? There's the hand again.
Oh, okay. Yes, is given. Oh, you're right. There's a, there's a, there's an important point here. You're right. Well, I oh, oh, repeat the question. All right. He said that while faith is a gift of God, he has not found in Scripture that obedience is a gift of God. He doesn't hasn't found that, and I think you're right. Obedience is a decision of our minds. I will obey. As Moses said, as I read in the sermon this morning, if you obey this, if you disobey this, obedience is a decision of the human being. I will choose to obey God in his, seventh, in his fourth commandment to obey the Sabbath day. What I am saying is the ability to carry out an obedient desire is totally a gift of God. That's what I find in Scripture. I will will and do of my good pleasure. All right. So obedience is a decision that I will obey and only I can make that decision. But I have no power to carry out any Sabbath keeping or tithe paying or anything else. I might give 10 percent of my money, but that is not stewardship. That is simply fulfilling a requirement. Stewardship is when all my money belongs to the Lord and I give it to him and I ask him, how would you like me to handle the 90% as well as the 10%? Then we come into a God providing, willing and doing experience of his good pleasure, doing in me what I don't have the power. Romans 7 is still Romans 7. The good that I would, I do not. And so the reality is that our obedient spirit remains helpless because of a fallen nature until God empowers it with his Holy Spirit to provide the actual change that must take place. That's what I'm saying. Obedience, yes, it is a human decision. Carrying out obedience is a divine gift. That's how I see it in Scripture. Uh, I, I just have a question. Um, actually, this is what I understand. I understand that if the only God can work through you and he can... He can save you, but um, but you can obey God in the same way like the people outside um, that know, don't know anything about God, like Hinduism, and they act obedience, they behave like good people, mm-hmm. and they have good standards and mm-hmm. good ethicals. That's right. And but you're always going to be short, no matter how if you choose that way or this way. Yep. So, um, but only look into Jesus. Because he's the one that can, we always fall short, so he's the one that grants us the salvation. He's the one that works in us to will and to do. Yeah. Uh, so what, you, right? what I hear you saying is that you can have good, obedient, careful people who don't accept Jesus Christ at all. What is the difference between good, obedient, careful people when they accept Jesus Christ? And uh, is there any difference between that? Are you asking that? Yeah, because, because I know like Christ, uh, a lot of people... Put Christ as a common, common man, but Ellen White says don't put him as a common man because even though he has his own, his our same nature as us, uh-huh. he he was a little bit different. So um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he came from heaven. I don't. Uh, what I'm saying is simply this: um, all of the good things that a human being can do come from God working on the conscience we all have consciences and saying it's wrong to cheat it's wrong to steal it's wrong to kill I'm going to live a good life I am going to give to help people I'm gonna go out there and spend my free time to feed the hungry I'm gonna go to the soup kitchen I'll do good things 
And many people can do good things without any help, quote-unquote, from the Holy Spirit, without a conversion experience and without anything else. So what in the world is the difference between that, uh, that kind of experience and what it means to live those same kind of things in Christianity? And I'll simply say this first. Yes, I can probably... I can probably do a lot of good things by just deciding to do them. Maybe I can quit smoking, bang, just like that. Maybe I can quit drinking and I'm done. Maybe I can go out and, and give free time to people in need. Just do all those things. I'll do it because it's right to do it and that's the way it is. I challenge anyone who is living in that kind of experience, I'll do it because it's right, it's ethical and it's proper. I'll challenge anyone to deal with impatience in the heart, to deal with jealousy, to deal with pride and ego by those same methods. I'll do it because it's right. It's the right thing to do. I'll never be impatient again. I will never be jealous of anyone else. I will never envy anyone. You see, it's very easy to live outwardly righteous lives, looking righteous, carrying out righteous activities, but that's not really what righteousness is all about. Righteousness is the heart. And a Christ-like heart, living under the control of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, means that he controls my impatience first, and then I can go out and do some works for him. Because if I go out and do works without his indwelling presence, the Bible says that's filthy rags, and I never knew you. But if I allow him to come into my life and correct the inside first and the heart first and the attitudes first and the values first, then my outward acts will be fruits of an inward righteousness and they are worth everything in God's sight. So what I'm suggesting here is that, yes, people can live morally upright lives, but that's not what the gospel and that's not what salvation is all about at all. No upright life walks into heaven. Because the heart hasn't been changed yet. And we've got to realize the evil and the depravity and the ugliness of our heart and admit it. I am helpless. As A.T. Jones would say, are you feeling kind of like you're dying? Well, then just go ahead and die. Get it done. Just die. And then we'll get started. He says, no one likes to die. And you're feeling like you don't want to go down that road. But he says that's the only walk that will lead us to salvation. Dying to self is the difference between a good upright life and a Christian life, a surrendered life, a saved life. And that's what Jesus had to do in his own life. Jesus had to die to his selfish nature. I know that's a tough word and a lot of people will fault me for saying that. He was not selfish. But he had a nature which had been conditioned to selfishness by 4,000 years of heredity. And that nature pulled at him to be selfish just as much as it pulls at us to be selfish. And that's why Jesus had to let that nature into his hands of the Heavenly Father. He couldn't control it by himself any more than you can control it. That's why he said on many occasions, not my will, but thine be done. So it is not the good deeds, it is the heart that produces the good deeds that matter for salvation. Can you comment a bit on glorification? Glorification, that's the easy one. Oh, yes, let's deal with that. These are toughies, that's easy. <laughs> 
what God does in glorification is he recognizes that this is all the hard part. This is the tough. This is the miracle of God above all other miracles that could ever be done to take a human being entrenched in selfishness and sin, change the neural pathways of that mind. So it loves what it hated and hated what it loves and get all that done while that human being is walking around in a sinful earth. Fighting with a fallen nature, struggling with all of the pressures of life, and God doing this miraculous work of justification and sanctification, the greatest miracle that has ever been performed, and Satan denies that it can be done. So when he gets it all done, he says, wow, there's nothing left to be done except fix up their bodies a little bit. We'll just, we'll just kind of give the brain a little tweak here, and we'll give the body a better body to live in, and the old fallen nature, oh, we'll rip that out, and we won't have to live with it anymore. And so God can do his work of creating in the same way he created on the first day and the second day and the third day. Let there be and there was. Let there be a new body and there's a new body. By the snap of his fingers, God can create matter and change matter and change uh, things. The hard thing is changing the mind. And so glorification is simply putting a seal of approval on the miracle of sanctification and justification. And he simply says, now we'll get all the rough edges back into shape so that the rest of life won't have to be plagued all eternity won't have to be plagued by imperfect bodies minds and heredity that's glorification as best I can see and God does it in his own way I don't have anything to say about that one see I have a lot to say about this I don't have one one sentence to say about a sanct a glorification I don't know what kind of body I'll have I look at myself have you ha have you all done the fun thing what will heaven be like Will we uh, have the same kind of eyes or will be the telescopic eyes and microscopic eyes? Well, I can see all the way down that table. Will we uh, have, what about the flowers that we pick and they'll never die? What will happen to our houses when we get all the flowers picked and they fill our houses and they never die? And, and, and all kinds of questions. And the, and the most interesting question of all that I have no answer for is what happens to the digestive processes in heaven? <laughs> that change wow God has got a lot of planning and changing to do in our bodies before heaven is going to be heaven and eternal life are, are the way we live so I'm waiting to see what glorification is going to be like I've got no answers for you <laughs> that's God's job not mine at all <laughs> yes back again he needs a microphone can we um, safely use the word Ratification All right. to have a better understanding of the word justification. justification. Yes, you can. Because the words righteous and justi justify are exactly the same words in the New Testament, in the original language. And it's confused us to have two different translations of that one word. Justification, just like um, believe, means more than just a mental acceptance. It has a faith surrender aspect to it. So here we have two words that really mean the same, way, same thing. And when we are made right, we are justified, which is what you're saying, rightified, rightified. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a word that nobody understands very well, but it is a good word and it says everything that needs to be said. Made right is justified, is made righteous. Yep, good. Um, regarding regarding um, the legal um, justification and sanctification. I'm picturing it as the seed, as legal justification at the cross. And 
the, the full acorn tree is in the seed all at the same time. So God can work his whole plan of sanctification through just seeing the seed because he knows what that will become. But even if there is some of our fallen nature that in, in the process of us growing up into that full tree of what he wants us to be, um, and producing some um, fruit that might be rotten or, mm-hmm. you know, of the fallen nature, mm-hmm. maybe he does the pruning of that yep. to help us, uh, you know, and then it will shrivel up and die even because yeah. it is actually rotten. Praise um, God. Praise God that he can foresee what is in the seed and foresee it as the actual harvest. Praise God he can see that. Because I've got only a seed growing in me and it's halfway there and sometimes a third of the way and I slip back and I move ahead and God sees the harvest and he treats me like the harvest. That's neat. So, so it's like, it's like perfection yeah. or, or like sanctification is at first the blade, then the ear, yeah. then the full corn in yeah. the ear. Yeah. And, and really sometimes on a, uh, on a, a, a shoot of, of wheat, there are maybe lots of different corns on that wheat, yeah. like maybe 30, and 30 60, and 60 and 100. 100. Yeah. So there's a lot of knowledge to grow into yes. to perfect you as you're growing up into Christ. Yeah. The whole thing is simply growing day by day, surrendering day by day and letting God do what you cannot do and allowing that to happen. Maybe somebody needs to turn on the air conditioner again. <laughs> Our boys are all with the microphones now. <laughs> there we are. All right, anyone else? Uh, I just want to make a quick comment before we continue with questions. All right. Um, let's just make sure that their uh, phrase is a question. So All right. That, uh, All right. Can, Only questions uh, can from now this. on. We have 10 more minutes, and then we'll close. And anybody who wants to get in a question, do it now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> Here's one over um, here. I, I had a question back here, actually. Um, you've commented um, very positively about Jones and Wagoner in 1888 and, and what we need to learn from that. Um, can you comment on the 1888 study committee and right. the direction that they're going and the, right. what, the work that they're doing and what's coming out of them? All right. The 1888 Message Study Committee is a group in Berrien Springs, Michigan. It is a self-supporting ministry. It is not connected officially with the church as a, as a direct group, just as Amazing Facts is a self-supporting ministry, etc. So there are uh, similarities there. The 1888 Message Study Committee was founded because of one desire. It was founded to bring back the messages of Jones and Wagoner into the consciousness of Seventh-day Adventists. That's the purpose of it. That's why it was founded. It is a lay organized group with two leading ministers at the beginning, elders Wheeland and Short, and otherwise all lay organized. And, uh, and so it was brought into, into, into existence to get back because, here's the reason, because when Wheeland and Short first presented these concepts of a rejection of God in 1888, it was rejected by the General Conference leadership in the 1950s. And so they had nowhere else to go but to bring it to the lay people to, to decide if these books should be printed and if the message should go forward. So they did it not in defiance, but they did it as the only way possible to get the message back into Adventist consciousness. And I praise God that they did. 
if Wheeland and Short had not brought back these books, I don't know if I would today have any kind of understanding that I have today in sharing with you. These books have been like bringing life back from the dead, bringing dry bones back to life in the book of Ezekiel. And all of a sudden we're beginning to see that there was something profound there. I believe that there has been no clearer message of righteousness by faith ever come to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and maybe never in the history of the world than came through those two gentlemen. And Ellen White testified to that over and over. So now, since they began that movement and it began uh, to reprint the books and get books out into the hands, as with every movement that is trying to do God's will, you know what, the, what Satan is trying to do. Get in there, disrupt, change, and alter. And the disruption that I have seen, and you'll have to examine this for yourself, the disruption that I have seen in that movement, and when I spoke in their meetings, I spoke at a number of their conventions, I found people that had come to those meetings that were like no other camp meetings that I went to. And I went to a fair number of lay organized camp meetings. And the ones who came to the 1888 meetings really were the salt of the earth as I could judge. They really wanted to know God's will. They were on fire for the Lord. But what I saw happen was an individual, and all it takes is one individual. An individual had became very prominent in that group, speaking and writing for them. I quoted from him several times today. Does anybody know who that is? Jack Sequera. And as Jack Sequera's message began to be more prominent in their, in their productions and in their presentations, all of a sudden we were hearing things that Jones and Wagoner never said. And what Jones and Wagoner said about justification and sanctification are, is not what Jack Sequera is teaching. So that has become a problem. And I can no longer fully endorse, go to the, mess, the 1888 message and learn everything you can from them. This is the way I speak now. The 1888 message continues to produce the books of Jones and Wagoner the ones you can't find anywhere else. The, 19, oh, uh, the, the 1893 and 1895 General Conference bulletins, for instance, that contain tremendous messages on righteousness by faith. And various other hard-to-get sources. Go there for those sources. Get it from the horse's mouth. Get it from Jones, Jones and Wagoner. Don't filter it through someone else's interpretation of Jones and Wagoner. And that's my recommendation these days. So it is a qualified recommendation that I can make, and I wish I could be more enthusiastic, but there is all, as I pointed out to Elder Wheeland and Short on some, several occasions, um, when there is a beautiful plate of apples and only one apple is spoiling, what does that one apple do to the others around it? It causes the spoilage to spread, and I'm concerned about that. Elder okay. Preby, someone wrote a question for me to ask you, and their question is, how does unpardonable sin fit into the misunderstanding of salvation such as justification and sanctification? Okay. Unpardonable sin. And there are a couple of texts in the Bible that say that there is a sin that, is, that you should not pray for, that when the person commits this sin, it is beyond the possibility of salvation. So unpardonable sin, how does it relate to justification? Judas could not be pardoned. He could not 
receive justification or sanctification. If it had been working in his life, and I presume it had because he was sent out with the others, he was ordained. If justification and sanctification were alive in his life, he had negated it by dwelling on selfish traits in his character. And therefore, this became the all-consuming part of his life. And the unpardonable sin became so dominating in his life, pride and selfishness, that it led him to betray the Son of God. That's serious stuff. Another person that I... We don't know of too many who have committed the unpardonable sin, by the way. Another person that apparently committed the unpardonable sin was the second person to whom God sent visions in the early Adventist church. And he was given the command, tell the visions. You know what's fascinating? Here we are in 2008. The reason that this gentleman, Hazen Foss, felt that he could not give the message that God had given to him to give because he would be laughed at, scorned, and ridiculed, and vilified was because he was half black and half white. Now we have one running for the President of the United States. Wow, have times changed, even in the United States of America. But that was his concern, because he was a mulatto, and he felt that he absolutely had no credible standing to go out and say one word, and all of his fears overwhelmed him. And the Lord said, I'll go with you and give you courage, and he said, I can't. I just can't do it. Now, I don't know all of his motivations, but that certainly played a part. And when he said no, later Ellen White found this out, he said, all desire for holiness and righteousness left me. And I felt totally empty. And to this day, I have no feeling that I want to come back to Jesus Christ. And he heard the vision of Ellen White. And he said, that's what was given to me. Go give it or you'll end up like me. So there's another example of a person committing the unpardonable sin. And, uh, and all of these things that, that, ha that happened in, his in, in, our, in their lives. Committing the unpardonable sin simply means going so far that you actually push the Holy Spirit out of your life never to return. You can't get him back. And there are very few people who do that. I'm going to hazard a guess. I'm going to hazard a guess that no one in this room has committed the unpardonable sin. Now, I don't know. But I'm going to hazard a guess that in a group like this, that's pretty well not a realistic possibility. Doesn't it limit God? In what way? Oh, okay. All right. No, God never says that's it. We say that's it. And she's saying, does that limit God? Uh, God never says that's it. He never walks away until we are so far away from him that he can't penetrate anymore. The shell is so strong. The pride and the selfishness are so great. It's gone. We don't have any desire. There is nothing left in our hearts that even is pulling us toward him. And God simply says, I love you still with all my heart, and my grace is right there for you. It's sitting there, but you can't take it because you have walked so far away that you can't. there's nothing in you that draws you to me anymore. And so, yes, God is limited by our decisions. Yes, he is. When we say no to God, he can't do what he would like to do in our lives. You can say God, that limits God. No, it'll, it simply allows God to, to, to continue free will. Otherwise, there would be no free will. Yes? There's a phrase that comes up in uh, 
these types of discussions is called uh, Christ will make up the difference. Could uh -huh. you explain that phrase? Yes, Christ will make up the difference. We are told that, um, that if we are exercising our best efforts to obey and serve God, that Christ will make up what we are unable to produce. Absolutely. Christ does make up the difference for human weakness, human ignorance, human incapability, but never human rebellion. God never makes up the difference in rebellion, in choosing to disobey Him. He can't make up the difference because then He would be sanctioning sin. And He would be saying, it's okay, now I will encourage you to do this in the hope you'll quit doing it sometime down the line. So what He makes up is the differences in human abilities. Whatever we are lacking, we don't have the mind to think clearly. We don't have the ability to carry out what we would like to do. Yeah, he will make up those differences. And he will work, Alan White says, on the plan of multiplication while we work on the plan of addition. That's what God makes up. The difference in human inability, not human commitment. He never can make up that difference. Speaking about dreams up in Northern California, we have a brother... Brother Ernie? Yes, Ernie Knowles. Claiming to have dreams from All right. the Lord. I've, heard, I've gotten that question once all, two, a couple of times already here. There is a gentleman living in, Calif in Sacramento, California, not far from where we live. I've met him once. His name is Ernie Knowles. Uh, in the last couple of years, he was healed of a very serious illness. He was dying, and the Lord healed him, brought him back to health again. And he is, appears to be in robust health, from be the best I can tell. His wife testifies to the fact that none of these dreams were engendered in any psychological way by him wanting or kind of manipulating or doing anything, that all of a sudden he began receiving these dreams and was told to tell the dreams in very similar ways that Ellen White was. And uh, so what he began doing is he, he, he didn't ask for invitations, but as an invitation came from a church, he would tell his dreams. That has resulted in a website that he now has put his dreams on for people to, um, to uh, read for themselves. So that's the facts of the situation. A gentleman who has not initiated, and I can testify fairly well to that, and is not one that I can judge to be one who is in, um, in, in unbalanced in some way and kind of psychologically needs to have approval in this way, that is not how I would evaluate this man. I see him as genuine. I see him as honest. I see him as sincere. That doesn't mean that his visions are prophetic dreams. That does not mean that. It means it could be that. Because back in Ellen White's time, there was a woman named Anna Rice Phillips who also believed with all her heart that she was receiving dreams and visions from the Lord. And Ellen White had to tell her these dreams did not come from the Lord. You are sincere, but they came out of your own mind. And that was hard for her to accept. But she did accept it. And she lived a very profitable Christian life after that in the Adventist church. So being sincere is not a proof that the dreams are from God. So here we are with another one. And we've had a few, haven't we? Uh, Jeannie Satran in France, the one in Thailand, or wherever it was, wasn't it? Uh, somewhere over there. And uh, now this one in Sacramento, California, as being fairly prominent. The other two clearly didn't pan out like uh, we had hoped they would. Will this one? I don't know. As I, you, you can look, you can look at the, uh, at the dreams. You can evaluate. What you have to ask as you read through the dreams, is this in contradiction to clear inspiration that has preceded it, or is it in harmony?
Does it lead to a growing experience in Christ to prepare for God's final work in the final generation? Is it something that God would tend to use if God were to bring? And remember, there will be dreams and visions in the last days. We cannot discount them. God will work, and we have to be open to this. So now it is our business to examine not just this person's sincerity, but two things, the visions or dreams themselves and the effects of those visions and dreams upon those that are hearing them and living according to them. And that takes time. So there's no way that a judgment can be made hastily. And so I have no authority to decide on anything like that. Only you and the Holy Spirit can make that judgment for yourself. If you are inclined to read those visions and dreams for yourself, make your own evaluation clearly, not because of prejudice or bias or sympathy or whatever, but simply because of an objective uh, comparison with what God says. So that is an issue that we will have to treat just like all the ones before and ask the question, is this one of God's genuine gifts or is it a gift which is maybe not false, but simply um, psychological. That is a possibility, and we have to make that decision. I talked to him, and I said to him, I can't endorse you. I don't know enough about you and what you're doing. The Holy Spirit will make it plain in due time if this is from him or if not. Gamaliel's advice is still good advice for us today. Is that if this is from the Lord, it will succeed. If not, it will, it will diminish and disappear. Elder Preby, I think... This might be the last question. All right. Um, last night there was a presentation in uh, uh, another hall. All here, right. Um, about the Red Books and the Red uh, Books, Sister White, the drama. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and the historian was doing the presentation from POC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering what you thought of it. The Red Books, I'm sure, have made their tour down here and have you've had the tickets available and some of you have actually seen it. And so I have not seen it. I have not. Uh, I've only heard the report of one person who has seen it. I trust that person's evaluation at this point. I have not made my own personal investigation of it. So I am less than qualified to give you a, a final answer. Uh, and so I'm only going to tell you what I think at this point. The best I can judge is that the intent, and I'm only judging intent here, the intent of that presentation was to um, show how human Ellen White really was. Uh, she made mistakes. Uh, she, there were some things that could have been done better. Um, there were positive things and there were negative things. Some evaluated the positive as such a percent and the negative as such a percent. But the thing which struck me, having not seen it but only heard about it, was something that happened, and I guess helped me out, I think it was near the end of the play, uh, where a number of scholars sitting at a table were investigating Ellen White's writings, and one would stand up and say, I can't square this. And again, if I'm wrong, help me out. I can't square this with what the Bible says or truth. This doesn't seem to match. And a gunshot would ring out and he would fall to the ground. Is that correct? Nobody? (laughs) That's what I heard. And it happened nine times or so. Each one would stand up. Yes? Oh, okay. With a scholar of some kind. 
all right, all right, that this just does not agree with historical evidence. And so uh, one by one, the gunshots would ring out and these scholars would fall down. In my humble evaluation, that was an attempt to justify the ones who were set apart or disqualified from teaching and leading in the Adventist church during the late 70s and early 80s as a result of the Des Ford controversies that rocked our church. And it was an attempt to say that these persons were martyred for the cause of, in, of, of, of uh, historical integrity, that this was the martyrdom of the honest in heart. Now, if I'm wrong, please understand I've not seen the, 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 the drama itself, so I can't evaluate it firsthand. If that is exactly what happened, then this is an attempt to justify and defend the ones who were leading us into the evangelical gospel during the late 70s and early 80s. Help me out if I'm misstating. Okay? So I have not seen it. I can't be your best evidence. But in my judgment, what I've heard about it, I'm not happy about. <laughs> I don't think it will help us to understand Ellen White. I think it's one more of those things which will bring us to a questioning of whether or not all she did was truly inspired by God. Okay. Once again, it has been a highlight of our trip to come here. We will treasure the memory as we go around the United States. And uh, we are praying for you folks. I consider, and I said it before and I'll say it again, I consider this movement that you are a part of to be the best and most urgent hope of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to get it done in this generation. Some of us older folks are not going to be here too much longer, and we'd like to get it done with you folks, not after you folks. And so you're going to have to help us out, us older ones. We want to go home in this generation too, and it will take the young and the old working together. And this is where I see it happening best, right here. Praise God and go home and be with him all this next year. Don't let anything separate you from him. Thank you for your invitation.